From the Financial Times in London, I'm Andrew Hill and this is FT News. Amid understandable but often exaggerated anxiety about the fate of the worker as automation advances, the fate of the manager often gets left out. When people talk about what might happen to the executive class, they increasingly lump managers in as white-collar victims of the next wave of robot workers. I'm joined on the line to discuss this by Julia Kirby, co-author with Tom Davenport of Only Humans Need Apply, a new book about the rise of automation, and Hamid Mogul, Director of Global Manufacturing for Rolls-Royce, the engineering group. Hamid, if I may start with you, you're using at Rolls-Royce increasingly sophisticated computerised machine tools and other technology to produce precision equipment such as turbines, allowing factories to run 24 hours a day and produce things to extraordinary precision. What are the management challenges that these technological advances have thrown up and how are you dealing with them? The future workforce is creating knowledge, less hands-on, establishing new technologies, and then embedding those technologies in the smart systems that operate many of the factory processes. So the roles will alter, become more skilled, but there will be many roles. We are now using intelligent robotics to complement the human skills. Many of today's norms will potentially become quite redundant. The focus factories and quality assurance as a process would change to what I would call continuously adapting processes that self-correct. And if you just step ahead, another phase, then the emerging digital capabilities will create this sort of integration of intelligent machines, advanced analytics, and high-skilled people capabilities. The so-called collaborative robotics may be smarter than today's robots in the future, but their decision-making ability will continue to fall short of humans. So so does this, Hamid, rule out the need for comprehensive oversight of things like quality that perhaps might have been a role for managers in manufacturing in the past? No, quite the opposite. The precise mix of skills will vary from sectors. However, I can see production leaders and supervisors will become primary integrators that will integrate highly skilled workforce, intelligent automation, smart factories, and try and create optimization of the complete value chains. You'll need leaders who can integrate, number one. You may also need deep specialist holders who own the modern standards, the modern knowledge-based standards, the know-how and templates, and continuously innovate technologies to make sure that their competitive advantage is retained. So, Julia, your book looks optimistically, I think, at the idea of augmentation of human workers rather than always substitution, which is the more dystopian view. What do you think are the implications for leaders of teams? Does it fit into that template that Hamid has outlined? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, automation has always just been approached by managers with this mindset of what can we take off people's plates. The point has not been to make the worker more capable, but to need less of the worker. But we think we're going to see a shift toward more of an augmentation mindset by managers. And that's going to involve machine developers as well as managers really looking for ways to help humans perform their really most human and most valuable work better. So instead of thinking 
as a worker, what kind of work can I do that a machine can't? Workers can be thinking, well, what kind of work could a machine not do if it didn't have me as its partner? And what do you find from the various examples that you've looked at are the ways in which managers and those who were doing perhaps in the past traditional management roles are having to adapt to this? I mean, is it possible even for some who've been brought up in a less automated, less computerized environment to make that change? Yeah, it really is a difficult change because it's always been a pretty fair assumption that if you automated work that was being done at low levels of the organization, then there was always going to be this higher level, uh, brainier work that people could step up to. So you were taking away not just the dirty and dangerous work, but also the dull work. And what we're seeing now with the introduction of these really powerful new cognitive technologies is that... In fact, they're taking away decision-making and some of the work that people have actually invested a lot of time and money into becoming educated enough to do. So where's that next higher ground that people will step up to? And managers haven't really had to think about this. They've always been able to just assume, well, that's there. Now they can't, and they really need to think instead about look, how will I carve out the different roles that these cognitive technologies and my people will play in the workplace? Because in the end, it'll always be the people that will give the company a competitive advantage. It's anything that can be codified and put in software, you know, if there's an app for that, it's not going to be the source of your competitive advantage because it's so quickly replicated by your competitors. So your competitive advantage is always going to be in the more maybe ineffable things that people bring to the work, and a lot of that is innovation. It's also empathy. It's a lot of things that humans still have at least a near monopoly on. And managers are just going to have to start to value those things more and figure out how to support them better. Hamid, how have you found this happening at Rolls-Royce and indeed in previous experience? Have people in general been able to adapt to these changes and how much has the company had to put into the effort of helping them adapt? We have a very, very structured dynamic strategic workforce plan where we define the evolution of the skills of the next three to five year timescales and beyond. If we can project these technologies, the strategic workforce plan can incorporate this and you can then develop your people through this and therefore it becomes relatively seamless. I think the future is very, very exciting. In fact, it brings a lot more freedom, not just to the product developers, but also to the people who operate factories and value chains. Julia, do you think that there is a particular responsibility, almost a moral responsibility that managers have in this next phase of technological development? You know, I do think it's a moral responsibility. But at the same time, I would say it doesn't have to be sold at the level of a moral responsibility because it's also just a good business imperative. And it's also something that the companies that are growing the fastest, you know, their managers are already thinking in this kind of way. For instance, we, in the course of writing the book, interviewed the head of engineering operations for all of Facebook. 
and uh, he was describing the huge amount of automation of what has been a, absolutely a knowledge worker job, and that's you know the administration of the data centers. Of course, they have many, many thousands of servers running around the world. Usually, IT shops have one person per maybe 200 servers to keep the machines running. And because of the amount of automation of this knowledge work that Facebook has done, it now has just one technician in its data center for every 25,000 servers. So you might think, okay, that means they're putting a lot of these high-paid engineers out of a job, but they're not at all. And this is what he told us. He said the point of all this automation is that it allows us to take these very simple but time-consuming tasks and move them off the plates of our really smart people. And we'd rather have them thinking about the next two years than about the last two years of stuff that we've already built. And that, to me, is a manager thinking in terms of augmentation, not thinking, how can I get a machine to reduce my headcount, but how can I get it to leverage my smartest people? Right. Julia, thank you. That's a good moment on which to wind up. Uh, Thank you both for taking part, and I'm sure we'll be able to come back in five years to discuss whether these implications have played out in reality. 